Hello and welcome to In Unison. I'm Zane Fiala. And I'm Giacomo G. Gregoli. And this is our podcast all about new choral music and the composers, conductors, choristers, and administrators who bring it to life. Let's start the show! Hey everyone, welcome to the next installment in our series of episodes all about ensembles. We've been chatting with the artistic and executive leadership of ensembles around the world about the history, operations, and overall ethos of each organization. Today's episode is a conversation with Dr. Joseph Gregorio, the director of choirs at Swarthmore College in Pennsylvania. It's a very interesting conversation covering the operations of choirs at a well-established educational institution, a somewhat different perspective than the independent choruses we often discuss. To get us started, let's hear a bit of the Swarthmore Chorus, the larger of the two choirs at Swarthmore, singing something epic. Here is movement six of the beloved Foray Requiem, the Liberame.
Okay, joining us today on In Unison is Pennsylvania native Dr. Joseph Gregorio, and Joe is both composer and conductor. In fact, IOCSF performed his setting of Dona Nobis Pacem back in 2009. I can't believe it's been that long. <laughs> I'm sure we'll have Joe on again in the future to talk about his compositional output, but today we're focusing on the ensembles he conducts currently, the Swarthmore College Chorus and Garnet Singers, as well as one that he founded, Ensemble Campanio. To give our listeners a better sense of Joe's conductor experiences, he has co-conducted the Yale Recital Chorus and the Yale Repertory Chorus, and has guest-conducted the Cornell University Glee Club and the Mansfield University Concert Choir. He served from 2004 to 2006 as the assistant conductor of the San Francisco Conservatory Chorus and was assistant conductor of the San Francisco Bach Choir from 05 to 07. Joe holds his DMA in composition from Temple University, his master's in composition from the San Francisco Conservatory of Music, another master's in choral conducting from Yale University, and his bachelor's in music from Cornell. He was a professor of music theory and musicianship at the Conservatory in San Francisco from 08 to 09, and also taught music theory at Temple University from 2011 to 2012. Joe, thank you so much for joining us today. We're very excited to chat with you. Thanks for having me here. Joe, let's get to know you a little bit better to kick off our conversation with an icebreaker. We've all had lots of spare time on our hands in the last couple of years that we've been trying to occupy with new skills and new talents. Uh, what new, what's a new talent that you'd like to grow or develop? Oh, my. There are several. Uh, so I might cheat and mention a couple. One would be playing classical guitar, um, a, a sound and an instrument that I just dearly love. Um, one would be getting more proficient at doing household electrical work. Um, one would be, um, drawing. I would love to learn how to draw better. Um, and I'm sure that if I put my mind to it, I could learn. I don't believe that you're either born with it or not. Um, and one that I think would be most consequential would be learning how to become what's, uh, what I've heard called a vaccine whisperer. Ooh. which is kind of an emerging um, job and skill in the world of medicine of um, gently persuading people to get vaccinated who are hesitant to do so. Um, I don't presently think I have enough patience for that job, but I think developing that would definitely fall under the category of a talent I'd like to develop. <laughs> I don't know which is more electrifying, that or being a hobbyist electrician at home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, right. Definitely knock both quite wood. shocking, yeah. Knock on, word, knock on wood, I have not been electrocuted yet. So uh, <laughs> That's so funny. For now, you know, I think I'm doing something right. Yeah, I love that idea of, of the, the vaccine whispers. I mean, I think that's so incredibly relevant, even for us as, as uh, members of choirs and directors of choirs that, uh, gosh, it's, it's a requirement for us. So it's, uh, it's really tough to see when we, we can't have folks kind of rejoin us for this period of time because of their choices. But yeah, that would be a hell of a new skill. Jeremy, uh, Dr. Jeremy Faust, who is a founder of IRC of our, our choir, uh, talks about that often. And it's, uh, yeah, it's a skill. It's a hell of a good one. Yeah, it's being a good science communicator is something that many scientists are not. <laughs> and so it's always a refreshing thing to see a science community or a scientist or a doctor be a good science communicator. And Jeremy Faust is an excellent one. Um, he's got some new positions. Yeah, he's a bit of a vaccine whisperer as well. Yeah. A bit. <laughs> so, Joe, why don't you tell us a little bit about your choruses at Swarthmore? Sure. I conduct two groups. Um, the first is the Swarthmore College Chorus. It is a group that comprises Swarthmore College students, faculty, staff, and members of the community. Um, it was the only real standing ensemble that existed when I began there um, eight and a half years ago. And uh, it has gotten very big. It is this semester, it looks like it's going to be about 106, 107 people. Ooh, um, wow. So yeah, kind of a juggernaut. Um, and then the other group is the all student subset of that group, the Swarthmore College Garnet Singers, which is more of a chamber choir. And the size of that has kind of varied over the years, depending on, you know, how many people want to try out. Um, right now we are at 33. 
So um, kind of a, a mid-sized chamber choir, um, you know, mid-sized small choir, hard, hard, to, hard to really feel like it's chamber when it's 33 people, but, um, and the Garnet Singers traditionally uh, have done slightly more challenging works than chorus, things that are a little more intimate, a um, little more tight-knit, um, and, you know, it, it being the select ensemble, it, it kind of uh, really aims to polish its performances in a way that, that it's hard to do with a huge group like chorus. Now we're going to be talking to a lot of different directors about their ensembles and, and a lot of them are going to be private organizations. You know, they're not associated with it, with a school, but nonetheless, I know that within a chorus, you can have kind of an ethos of your organization, you know, how you like to put music and art out into the world. Can you tell us a little bit about kind of what the ethos of your approach to your choruses is? Sure. It all starts with the music, with the choice of music. Um, it it really has to be music that I myself uh, am attracted to um, or just downright in love with. Um, I find that I can teach most effectively when I have those feelings about the music that I'm teaching. I have to pick music that is not just music that the ensemble um, can sing as they are now, but that they have to grow a little bit to be able to sing well. Um, I have to pick music that, you know, has good, has good text, certainly has something that my students can, well, not just my students, I have to pick music that all of my singers can emotionally uh, find their way into through the text. Um, the ethos of the groups, though, chorus is like I said before, kind of a juggernaut. And so there's always sort of a chaotic energy about coming into the room at the beginning of rehearsal. Um, it's loud. There are a lot of people all talking, but we settle eventually through warmups. And then our rehearsals are actually very, very focused. Um, I'm, I try to keep everyone involved as much as possible. Um, sometimes I'll do things like if I need to rehearse one voice part, um, I have everybody sing that part. And it's not just, you know, to be busy work, it's a chance for everybody else to get experience reading a different part, maybe reading a different clef, um, becoming aware of what's going on around them in the texture in a way that they wouldn't if they were just kind of sitting and listening and not really doing anything. Um, with Garnet Singers, it's there's a lot less chaos because it's a smaller group. Um, it's a bit more familial because it is so small. Um, I think I'm a little bit more um, a little bit more easygoing on the podium with Garnet Singers. Um, I maybe joke a little bit more, which isn't to say I don't joke with my big chorus. I do. In fact, I would say that it's kind of my podium personality is maybe 80% serious. Let's get to work and, and 20%, you know, having fun while we do it. Um, <laughs> Throw out the occasional dad joke for them just to keep them on their toes. My favorite the dad joke. The dad joke is a pre-concert ritual for the Garnet Singers. Oh yeah. I have, I have made it that. Yes. Um, and if they if my students aren't warmed up before they go on, they definitely are after all the groaning. We have that at IOC as well. It's just Zane doesn't do it intentionally. It just happens. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, you you talked about um you talked about um repertoire selection being sort of where you you start. And um What's interesting to me is to think, I, I wonder how much do you keep your ear to the ground in terms of the music that is typically being performed or, um, you know, you sort of talked about generating a lot of this from yourself and you're like, I need to love this music. I want to make sure that it, it suits the ensemble. I want to sort of press them a little bit. Um, but when uh, you think about the universe of, of um, uh, compositions that are out there, do you keep an ear to the ground? Are you sort of thinking about who's performing what? Um, you know, who's in vogue at the moment? Zane and I were joking a couple of days ago. I pulled out a, a Morton Lauridsen piece and I was like, oh God, remember when everybody was singing Lauridsen and like that, you just, you couldn't get away from the composition that was having this moment. Um, how do you think about that? Like, how do you think about, um, do, do you keep an ear to the ground in terms of like the types of compositions and the types of music that are out in the universe? 
Um, and do you bring that back into the fold when you select rep for your groups? Perhaps inversely, you might say that if something is a huge fad, I am very unlikely to perform it uh, with my choirs at Swarthmore. Um, I tend to favor music that has more timeless quality rather than being a flash in the pan. And I have a lot of students who over the years have come in and said, oh yeah, you know, in high school we performed, you know, music by X, Y, and Z, um, super popular composers. And um, I don't tend to program that kind of stuff at Swarthmore. I, I want to kind of go a bit broader than that and a bit deeper into history than that. Um, I feel like these four years that students spend in college um, are really a time to explore and learn more about the tradition. Uh, and so not just the Western art music tradition, certainly, but uh, all kinds of choral music traditions. Uh, so I, I, do I do program a wide variety of music from lots of different traditions from around the world um, and from throughout history. And I also make a balance, um, particularly in the chorus, my big group, of performing major works some semesters and performing programs of small pieces in some semesters so that we don't you know, become uh, just a choir that does the big pieces um, or just a choir that does you know, program after program of small pieces, both of which are okay, but I want my students to have all kinds of experiences of all kinds of music. Do you, um, do you program a lot of music from living composers that are, that's newly written? Sometimes, yes. Um, particularly in Garnet Singers, it's it, actually this semester, we're doing a program entirely of music composed and arranged by current students. Oh, cool. Wow. So um, I get to, and these are, I've done this once before, uh, and it's just one of my favorite things to do. I can marry my professional training as a composer to my work as a conductor um, and help students craft pieces over the course of a semester that I then conduct with the Garnet Singers in performance. And they, you know, walk away, not just with a recording that they can use for whatever they need to use it for, but they also maybe walk away with sort of a new, a new skill um, or a new understanding of what it takes to compose or arrange for voices. Are a lot of the singers in Garnet Singers also composers? I wouldn't say a lot of them, no. Um, and some of the students whose works we're going to be doing this semester are not in Garnet Singers. Um, the Garnet Singers, I should say, if I didn't already, the Garnet Singers is a subset of the chorus. So uh, a few of these students are people who are singing chorus, not Garnet Singers this semester, um, but are going to write for us anyway. Is that a requirement? If you're in Garnet Singers, you have to sing in chorus? Yes. Yeah. That's pretty typical. At least that's my experience at most universities is that if you want to sing in the select group, you got to sing also in the larger group. Yeah. I think that is typical at a lot of places. I think there are also a number of places where um, if you have a massive student population, then you kind of audition at the start of the semester and you are then placed into some choir. Um, you might not necessarily have a lot of say about what, what choir you get placed into. Um, we have, in the Department of Music and Dance, we've thought a couple times about um, loosening this requirement, particularly now that the chorus has gotten so big, it would, it would be a lot more feasible than it, it used to be to have true independence between those ensembles. Um, but it is still useful to have the overlap. Joe, tell us a little bit about that process of finding and retaining singers. I mean, it sounds like you, you have a little bit of a luxury here with a, a large campus to sort of choose from and the groups are kind of growing. So has your process been changing a bit recently? Um, it's funny, you say large campus. I And I think Swarthmore is very, very small. I think we have something between 1,500, 1,600 undergrads. Um, and that's it. Um, and I, you know, some of my colleagues work at big research universities and have thousands and thousands of students. Uh, and so have have tons and tons of audition needs. Um, but how I recruit and retain singers? Well, um, recruiting is 
something that has come to be done a lot more than it used to be by word of mouth from current singers. Um, and every now and then we'll have somebody who just brings in, like, I just, one of my altos just brought in what feels like the entire swim team to audition this semester. <laughs> so, you know, every now and then we get, we get something like that. But at the beginning of the school year, you know, in normal years anyway, I'll go around campus, I'll put up posters that usually have something that approaches a dad joke on them or a, you know, a <laughs> dad joke, dad humor worthy meme. And uh, I send out an email to the whole student body shortly before the semester starts. Um, and, you know, a lot of students sang in high school and want to keep doing it at college. And so they come out for a semester. And um, what has happened traditionally is that my groups would be much bigger in the in the fall semester than in the spring. And that was usually a function of, you know, people come into school and try out for everything, all the activities, and then realize I can't do that anymore. And so spring would usually see a drop off. Um, and that would often be a time when students would go abroad. And so, you know, we would have a little bit of a drop in, in membership. But um, this year is definitely bucking that trend. Garnet singers are just as big as they were last semester. Chorus is even bigger. Um, as far as retention goes, I really think, again, a lot of it goes to what kind of music you choose, um, programming a, a broad variety of things, um, and not always sort of doing the same sort of stuff. And then a lot of it also comes down to, you know, how the students feel about the experience socially. You know, so we have in chorus, we have a couple students who we've sort of declared to be the ministers of fun. And so they'll, you know, program things for the group to do. Um, now, of course, we're going to have to do it virtually. Uh, but, you know, that's only for next week. I think the chorus is going to do something fun on Zoom rather than trying to rehearse, which is just ugh, talk about a soul sucking, soul crushing endeavor um, <laughs> if there ever was one. But then once we get back in person, then I think my ministers of fun will, will try and have some things for us to do in person. I love it. When I was at San Francisco State, um, <clears throat> you know, there were a lot of voice majors who, you know, their, their major was classical voice. And they had to sing in an ensemble. That was part of the deal at San Francisco State was that they had to sing in some ensemble and there weren't a lot of choices. Um, and so we had a good... I don't know, third of the singers in the chamber choir, the, the smaller select group, quote unquote, our version of the Garnet Singers, who were these voice majors who they kind of had to be there. They they enjoyed singing for, for Josh Haberman because he's a great director and everything. But there was a little bit of a like, I don't really have a choice. I have to sing in this group. And I and I feel like they didn't love that. Do you have that same experience at Swarthmore? Are there voice majors who have to take a choir and so you're kind of dealing with that? Or is everybody in the choirs just gung-ho, choir nerd, can't wait to get to next rehearsal and, and sing the Bluebird again? Oh, I wish I wish it were I wish it were like that. Um we for the most part though, I mean, Swarthmore students are so incredibly overbooked and busy that if they're taking the time to do something, it's because they they really want to be there. Um, we also do have a lot of students who uh, participate in the chorus because they are taking private lessons through the Department of Music and Dance. And as a condition for receiving part of their financial aid that they use to, um, to pay for lessons, um, they are asked to participate in departmental ensemble as well. And so a lot of the voice students wind up uh, participating in chorus uh, or chorus and garnet singers. But I find that to actually be a really good thing, um, especially the more serious the singers are, because the reality is that when they get out of school and get on to life either in grad school or beyond grad school as a singer, you're going to have to at some point take a job as a section leader. You're going to have to have some kind of experience dealing with choirs um, and life in a choir. Um, and so I think it's really good preparation. Yeah. I also wondered about, you know, many choir directors have different differing opinions about the sound that they want to hear from their chorus. You know, you get over to the Nordic countries and there's that really pristine, clean sound, no vibrato, very, very tight 
tight harmony. Um, and then you have like symphony chorus type singing where you're, you're encouraging your singers to use the full color of their voice, bring the vibrato out. It's totally fine because the harmonies are different and we're singing with symphony, et cetera, et cetera. But within the chamber choir world, so like Garnet singers or the chamber singers at San Francisco state, where do you fall in that realm? Do you prefer a sound that's a little bit cleaner, tighter, less vibrato, or do you like something with more color to it? I think it really depends on the music. Um, and I and I will ask for different sounds depending on what what the music needs. Um, and it and it, I don't even think I could go as far as to say like if we're doing Renaissance polyphony, then I ask for straight tone. Um, I think I might say you know something like um, you know use a use a simple tone for this piece, um, and maybe when we get to such and such a passage on this particular. Uh, on this particularly florid bit of text or this particularly, um, you know, evocative moment, um, maybe we'll bring in a little bit more vibrato to help color the sound a bit, um, to help intensify things a bit. Um, and then maybe when we get to this cadence, you know, then maybe we'll pull the vibrato out. Um, so I think it, it, I can't even, I don't even know if I can say that it, it varies rigidly from piece to piece. It can even vary within the same piece. Um, that the sound really should serve the music, in my opinion. I agree with that. Do you ever get any pushback from any of the voice majors who are like, oh, if I sing straight tone, it's putting it's putting too much stress on my vocal production. Hey now, don't be don't be mean to the singers. So we have <laughs> we have reasons. <laughs> uh no, no, I I don't. And I, I think it might be because I there aren't really that many times when I explicitly tell my choirs don't use vibrato i think a lot of times students will you know for for music like renaissance polyphony where you really have to listen i think a lot of times instinctively they will um they will use a little less anyway just to to be able to better uh tune and blend um but if it ever you know if i ever need to say something i do but um I also think there's real beauty in the the broad diversity of sounds that people bring to a choir, you know, and I don't I don't necessarily want everyone to sound exactly the same. Um, it's it's in that diversity that you know the the magical combinations of tones and overtones mix together and make an ensemble just sound like itself and nobody else. So you know, if I mess with that too much, then um, you know, I, I, we don't, we don't sound like ourselves anymore. And I, I, don't, I definitely don't want that. I agree. I want to talk about something you mentioned earlier, Joe, with, um, in relation to retention of singers that you're a constant in this organization and certainly in the, in the large, um, sort of, uh, university choir, like you will have people who are from the community who will be there year after year after year. And certainly students will sort of move in and out. How does that affect the idea of the growth of the talent of the group? You know, when you say you want to pick pieces that kind of push people and move people forward, how do you think about that when, you know, a portion of the, the organization changes every year? Is it just that you continuously raise the bar year after year after year and the the community kind of catches up with you? Or do you, is it sort of just a constant game of like, okay, here's where we're at this year. This is the talent I've got. How can I push these people further? Um, that is a really good question. It's kind of a combination of both of those. And now with chorus in particular, I'm at this really interesting point where because the organization is growing so much, the bell curve of abilities in the group is getting much wider. Um, on mostly on the end for for singers who are kind of new to the choral experience. Um, I mean, I've always had a number of strong students. Every year I'll have a number of, you know, of really strong singers. But lately I've been getting a lot of singers who come in with very little experience. And it is an adjustment for them to have to jump in and be able to sing, um, you know, <laughs> something polyphonic, say, um, that's, that's really hard if you've never been in a choir before. Um, but I, I do find to an extent that if I keep my expectations high, 
um, they keep my standards very high, that they work hard to rise to meet them. Um, now, in a big group like Chorus, you know, like I said earlier, you know, you you can't, you will never get something to sound perfectly pristine with a bell curve that wide and a group that big. It's just your, you know, live music being what it is. It's gonna it's gonna happen that you can't just get a perfect polish on everything. But it's not really about that perfect polish anyway. It's about the process and picking music that allows those newcomers to come in, you know, feel a little disoriented for a little while, but then slowly figure out how to be part of their section and then be part of the whole choir um, and give a you know a, a convincing performance of something. I love what you said about keeping your expectations high and that and that people will rise to that. I I often have seen directors who kind of dismiss a little bit their group. They're like, oh, well, that's just beyond them. So, yeah, I'm not going to even try it or uh, I, I take what I can get or whatever, you know, and I feel like having just that slightly higher expectation, like really understanding where your group is and then lifting your expectation just above that. So they have something attainable that they can reach for and they can get and they can feel good about that. And then incrementally you just keep raising the bar that you end up with a better group. And it sounds like you, you have the similar process, which I really like is the, is chorus auditioned. Um, so I used to run it as an auditioned group and then realized that that was not a good thing to do. And so now I meet with all incoming singers just to kind of figure out what voice part they should be on and to sort of hear where they are in their journey as a choral singer. Um, but anybody who wants to sing in chorus uh, can do so. Um, Garnet Singers is auditioned, though. I, I, I do have to... Um, audition that one because I need to sort of keep it that reasonably small <laughs> to yeah, right, feel yeah. like a chamber choir. As you bring singers into chorus and you've met with them, you now kind of know where they are as a singer, as a musician. Do you then kind of keep track of them throughout the semester, throughout the year of those individual singers who probably could use a little extra encouragement? Do you keep an eye on them and check in with them? Or is it kind of like, well, uh, I see where you're going to be able to grow. Go ahead and jump into the bass section. Nah, and good luck. Zane, it's, it's Swarthmore. Just throw them to the wolves. <laughs> you got to sink or swim, man. Anywhere else, it's an A. <laughs> well, you do have a reputation that precedes you. <laughs> you know, I wish I, if I were upstairs, I could grab a T-shirt for you that says, you know, Swarthmore Music on the front. And on the back, it has a treble clef and a staff with a B double flat. And underneath it, it says... Anywhere else, it would have been an A. <laughs> um, okay, all right. So, you know, I would say that there are always a few students who are going to need a little extra help. And they they will often kind of, um, you know, sort of rise to the surface and, uh, you know, get that attention one way or another, whether they ask for it or whether, you know, I hear it and I say, Hey, I'd like to meet with you. Maybe we could, you know, go over some of this stuff one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. There's always a little bit of that. Um, and students often, you know, there are some students who will stick with it and, you know, they'll, they'll then start taking classes in the department of music and dance. And, you know, we have a, uh, a learning to read music class that uh, is sort of, positioned before our real theory musicianship sequence. Um, sometimes students find their way into the theory musicianship sequence after having taken that. Uh, so, you know, we, um, there are ways for people to learn uh, who, who really want to learn more um, as part of their time in the chorus and at Swarthmore in general. Let's take a pause in the conversation now to listen to a couple of performances from the Swarthmore Garnet Singers. First up is Vaughn Williams' Overhill, Overdale, followed by Allá va un encobijado by Antonio Lauro. Yeah. 
Now, going back to um, auditions, what do you look for when you're auditioning a singer? And this is obviously for Garnet singers now that you're auditioning for this more elevated group, the, the select ensemble. What is it that you're looking for in your audition process? One thing is honestly persistence. Um, there are, for some of the sections, there just aren't that many openings from time, you know, from one semester to another. And so there are a number of students who come back and audition, you know, two or three times. And then, you know, that really means a lot to me because it's clear that they want to be there, you know, which, which is one of the most important things for me, um, for, for either ensemble, but especially for Garnet Singers, because it carries that extra commitment beyond what they're already doing in chorus. I mean, I could, you know, yeah, I could talk about all of the, all of the, good qualities of musicianship and intonation and uh, good rhythm and, you know, musicality and all of those things that go into making a, a good singer. But I, I, I really think um, one of the ones that impresses me most is persistence. You know, how hard are you working? You know, uh, how, how badly, how badly do you want to be there? Um, and I can, you know, once I get students in the door, then, you know, we can work on musicianship together. We can work on phrasing together and blend and all that kind of stuff together. Yeah. When I auditioned for IOCSF, um, obviously, you know, we're looking for a certain level of musicianship and, and reading skills because we sing hard music, but I really try to tune into the, to the person and like their personality and see how I feel like they'll fit into the, the community. 
that makes up IOCSF because it is a pretty special thing. I mean, we're a volunteer group. It's, um, you know, it's a community choir, quote unquote, but we're, we're, I think that it's, you know, we sing hard music and it's a high quality group, but sometimes I just, someone sits down or stands in front of me and sings and I'm like, yeah, that was, that was pretty good. There was some intonation trouble here and there, but God, their personality, like it just goes into my soul. And I'm like, I want to be your friend. I want you to be a part of my my family, part of my community. And so I'd let them in and then we work on the stuff that that they need work on. So is that also a part of your uh, your thought process? Like, how will this person fit with the other singers? Or is that less important for you? It's a little less important because my choirs at the at the core of it, they are classes. And so you know, they're, they're academic classes. And so thinking about, oh, is this personality going to rub me the right way or rub someone else the wrong way? I can't really think about that. That's not, that's not really, um, that's not part of the overall uh, judgment, right. <laughs> I guess you could say, yeah. my, my decision-making process. Um, I don't think ethically it could be, frankly. I, um, I agree. I'm glad. I'm glad but in a community, <laughs> in a community group, absolutely. Absolutely yes. I I did have that uh, that experience uh, through my time with Ensemble Campanio, and I I know very well what uh, how important that is to have you know have the group work together like a family. Yeah. Let's talk. Actually, let's talk. Go ahead and talk about that group a little bit since you since you've brought it up. Um, you founded a new choir, which was a community choir, and I'm assuming that Ensemble Campania was sort of a, a level of a, a, a passion project for you, if you will, that this was your thing and you kind of wanted to start it. Tell us a little bit about the process of forming that group. Why did you decide it needed to exist and uh, what was the impetus? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it filled a niche in the lives of a number of my friends from college and... Uh, it, the the niche was basically to find something for post collegiate singers to to find a group for post collegiate singers that lived up to their standards of uh, not just music making but also camaraderie and uh, to do that you know we we pulled singers from a vast geographical area we were basically existing from you know southern Pennsylvania up through Boston and out to upstate New York. And, you know, <laughs> we, we would, we would meet in, and the group still does meet in various locations all over the Northeast United States. Is it sort of like you pull together and you, you've got a program and there'll be, you know, four rehearsals and then boom, you're off and performing. Is it more like that? It kind of, yeah. You know, the, we start the season in the fall um, rehearse for, you know, maybe rehearse five or six months, I guess. And then for the last three months of the season, um, when you get together, you give a concert and it was probably the most impractical way that you could imagine to form and run a choir. Um, we found it <laughs> and yet it hung together as a family and is still going in its, I think it's 11th season now. There are, there are new frontiers show. You sure you don't want to start a Zoom choir at some point just to be even more miserable? And <laughs> Excuse me while I go vomit. <laughs> uh, Joe, since you brought up Ensemble Campagno, and in my brain I sort of now am seeing these two different worlds in, in sort of like the machinery of a, you know, choirs within a university context and then sort of like private or community choirs. And then, of course, there's the third sort of universe of professional choirs or semi-professional groups as well. I want to talk a little bit about uh, the the sort of behind the scenes, the executive administrative sort of operations of these groups. What can you tell us about what it's like? Um, I, I want to sort of start a little bit more with the university perspective because that's something that's a little bit more foreign to me. What What is the machinery of pulling together um, uh, a season and, and an organization within the university context? Do you sort of just have tentpole events and you're like, I get a budget every year. The university decides it for me, and uh, I just sort of make use of it, and and off I go. You know, I'm using university resources, and it's you know I just need to book the the spaces and things like that. Or are you a little bit more involved every year and sort of thinking about um, you know crafting what will happen that year and sort of negotiating every year um, with the university to figure out what your seasons might look like? Tell us a little bit about sort of what happens behind the scenes to bring 
your performances to life. Sure. In the average season, it's very cut and dried. Since my choirs are classes, uh, I do get a set budget for the year, and I can use that pretty much how I see fit. Um, I use it to buy music. I've used it in the past when we had some leftover funds to buy uh, folders for the ensembles. Uh, I use it usually in the spring semesters when the chorus will do a major work. Uh, I will use that if we need to hire instrumentalists to play with us. But usually it's, like I said, it's it's just very cut and dried. Um, I will make a program and I'll use the budget to pay for it. In some years, it's been a little bit more, um, more there have been more moving parts. Um, and perhaps never more so actually than during the pandemic when uh, the chorus did do some virtual performances. Um, and some of those virtual performances were for college functions, like uh, for commencement. And so I would be talking to folks in the office of the president about, you know, what kind of music we're going to be putting together and how long it should go. And, you know, can things as mundane as, you know, can the credits for the video be separated from the video of the actual performance? Uh, so, you know, that in those kinds of situations, and yes, I have to, I have to coordinate with my administration, but ordinarily uh, it's, it's a class. And so there's a lot of autonomy. Do you guys go on tour? We do not know the, the chorus does not really have, nor does the Garnet Singers have a history of touring and uh, don't really have the budget or the uh, machinery for that at the moment. Um, and I'm only an adjunct at Swarthmore, so I'm, I'm not there full time. Uh, I'm, I, you know, I plan what I can and every now and then we'll do some performances um, at venues around town, you know, before the pandemic, the Garnet Singers had started doing some performances at a, uh, a local senior living facility. And um, obviously once the pandemic hit that went right out the window, but um you know, largely will perform on campus. Is there anything that you're, you just really, really wish you could do that you're like, man, if I just had a blank check or, you know, more hands or whatever? I mean, what, what, what's your vision and what's your dream kind of for what's, what's uh, coming next for your organizations? Oh, well, I mean, I would love to go on tour. I think that would be, I mean, you, if you've, ever got to do a choir tour yourself, particularly an international tour. I mean, you just know what a, what a life-changing experience that can be. You know, some students have never been out of the country and, you know, to get to experience uh, another country through the lens of one who goes to perform there um, is a really unique thing. You, you'll almost invariably get to go to some really interesting venues, um, but you also have a little bit of time to be a tourist. And so, you, you get a little slice of life abroad while also communicating something about your home country and the way that you perform and, you know, the kinds of music that choirs from your country perform um, and getting to meet people from whatever country you go to is always such an important part of a tour too. Uh, so all of those wonderful things are, are things that I would, I would love to be able to offer my singers. Um, but you know, we're not, we're not. So, Hey, Swarthmore admins, if you're listening, <laughs> write Joe a check, bring him on full time and get these, get, get them on tour. That's actually, it is, it's true. It's truly a, a life changer. I mean, I, I couldn't agree with you more about how important that is. I mean, it, it probably also for the missions of the choir too, to say like, here's who we are, what we do and what we're working on. And, and to, to help those students have that experience of, yeah, there's, there's nothing like, you know, singing, uh, Vivaldi in Italy or whatever, you know, wherever, wherever you may sort of play in France, yeah, or wherever, you know, whatever you may find. Um, uh, and then further abroad you go and uh, sort of gathering those experiences that folks have never had before, which is pretty, pretty great. Um, how do you typically, how do you fill your, your audiences? How do you get bring people to come in and uh, see your performances? I'm guessing a lot of it is word of mouth through the folks who are in the group, but what else do you do? Um, that's, it's funny, but that's pretty much it. Um, because we perform on campus in our concert hall, which holds, I think, just south of 500 people, um, with groups as big as ours are, they, in normal times, can can fill or almost fill 
exclusively on, you know, word of mouth um, and campus announcements. Uh, it's not a huge venue. So, you you know, I'm very fortunate in that sense that we don't have to do a lot to get the word out and get butts in seats for the concert. Um, Tick- ticketed events? I mean, are people paying to come and see these things? Or is it just like, it, this no. is the event, this is what we're doing, come check it out? Yeah, it's free. It's, you know, it's all offered as part of the Department of Music and Dance's concert offerings uh, in a given semester. Um, so there's, it's it's not, we, we don't sell tickets for admission, no. We Now that we have to keep uh, a lid on the, our numbers because of the pandemic, um, they're, they're, is a concern about quote selling out um, for concerts because you know students want to be able to get their people important to them into the concert and I am absolutely fine with that and happy to accommodate it as much as possible um, but we can't just fill the place the way that we used to at least not right now yeah well let's hope we're let's hope we're crossing over that threshold towards something that looks more normal <laughs> moving forward yeah knock on wood. And speaking of looking forward, so you've got, uh, you were just at the beginning of the semester right now, I'm assuming, uh, coming back from the holidays or just a couple of weeks in. What are you looking forward to? You've got any upcoming performances, recordings, uh, collaborations you'd want to share with us? Anything we should be tuning into pretty soon? Um, yeah, what's on the rep list this, uh, this semester? Yeah, what's coming? Sure. So for the Garnet Singers, um, like I said, it's all student compositions. So those are those are currently cooking, and some of them are starting to come in now. And I'm starting to work with those uh, student composer and arrangers um, to uh, you know bring those to fruition. For chorus, we have two pieces that I'm very excited about. One is Seven Songs of the Rubaiyat by Adolphus Hailstork, which is an absolutely gorgeous and mystically beautiful piece. Uh, we're only going to be able to do a few selections from the seven songs, um, but I'm going to be having my student conductor conduct those. Um, those are just glorious pieces. And I, I really, I'm actually very jealous of her that she gets to conduct these. Um, and then the big major work that we're doing is, is, um, Florence Price's Abraham Lincoln Walks at Midnight um, in an edition by Michael Driscoll. Um, this is a version for piano and chorus and soloists. And so it's pandemic friendly. You know, there is a version of the piece for full orchestra. Uh, and it's actually interesting because it's a so parts of the music are entirely different in the orchestral version. Um, so it's not like you can use the piano part from this edition to, you know, <laughs> cover what the orchestra is doing in the other edition. It's, it's almost two different pieces. It is so thrilling to see Florence Price be programmed now. I mean, uh, just we'd learned, I learned of her only recently through from Michelle Kennedy, who was performing uh, a bunch of pieces of hers, which were soloist and, and piano work, which was very COVID friendly, which I think part of what, what came back uh, or why, why it should sort of come back into vogue. Um, and part of the social justice movement as well. I think lots of folks are like, hey, there's there are lots of composers out here that we haven't uh, heard from. And I think she's she's one of those those few that feels pretty special. And also really good, you know. Really some, damn good. There is some glorious music in this piece. Um, so I really can't wait to dig into that with my singers when we get back. What's a, what's a bucket list piece for you, Joe, that you just would love to have the opportunity to conduct? sometime any piece um i would love to do the bach saint john passion i would love to do um the mozart requiem um you know the last couple of years i really haven't gotten to do a lot of major works because uh covid shut us down in the middle of spring 2020 we were doing the 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 sort of extended work we were doing that semester was rayphone williams five mystical songs um we were going to bring in baritone randall scarlatta and collaborate and that was you know so that one went away and then for the rest of the pandemic all we could do was sort of small stuff online but yeah there there are a couple of sort of old chestnuts that i've never gotten to conduct that would be you know just a, an absolute delight to be able to do um but you know some of the ones that i've gotten to do that i'm happy about are things like the foray requiem mm-hmm. um you know, the, the Mozart Vespers of the Psalm Confessor, um, the Vivaldi Gloria even. I mean, it's such a, it's a little 
it's a little gem, but it's just glorious. It's so good. Um, and it, you know, it was one of those things that was just right for my ensemble when we did it. Hmm. Um, well, Joe, it's been so great to have you on and talk to you about Swarthmore and the ensembles and just kind of how you approach being a leader of singers. Um, but as I mentioned in the beginning of the episode, we are definitely looking forward to having you back on in a future date to talk about yourself as a composer, um, because obviously that is how I first came to know of you. And uh, we in IOCSF has sung a few of your pieces over the years. Um, so maybe as a little bit of pointing people in the right direction to know more about Joe Gregorio, the composer, can you tell folks where uh, they can find information and uh, up to date stuff about you as a composer online? Sure. Joseph Gregorio music.com. That's the place to go. Um, it will also have a link there to my web store where you can listen to and purchase scores. Um, so that's what I would, that's what I would recommend. Fantastic. Yeah. We look forward to that conversation because there were some really good questions that you suggested that we uh, ask all of our composer friends. And so we can't wait to toss them back onto your side of the court and see what, uh, what you do with those questions. But uh, this has been a real joy, a real pleasure um, to, to hear about your experiences and to learn more about Swarthmore's courses. So thanks for joining us. Well, Zane and Giacomo, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Let's finish off today's episode with a performance from the Swarthmore Chorus, singing Mozart's iconic Ave Verum Corpus. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the In Unison Podcast. Be sure to check out episode extras and subscribe at inunisonpodcast.com. You can follow us on all social media at inunisonpod. 
and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts to let us know what you think. Chorus America registration forms distributed by Chorus Dolores, who hopes to see you in Baltimore this spring. In Unison is produced and recorded by Mission Orange Studios. Our transcripts have been diligently edited by IOCSF member and friend of the pod, Fausto Daus. And our theme music is Mr. Puffy, written by Avi Bortnik, arranged by Paul Kim, and performed by the Danish vocal jazz ensemble Dynamic on their debut album, This Is Dynamic. Special thanks to Paul Kim for permission. Please be sure to check them out at www.dynamicjazz.dk.